Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the hosts of Probably Science, Matt Kirshen and Andy Wood. I guess we should have said the theme song. We was, that, was that you just doing that? <laughs> That's how good I got. I, I, could, I wasn't looking. I didn't know whether it was you doing that or someone from like the sound booth or, or, or even at first, because it took me a second to even realize it was amplified. I was like, is there a listener to the show in the audience who was disgruntled at the lack of a theme tune just then, who has taken upon themselves to do that? And then other people who are probably in the room who've never heard the show and, and they're like, why is this person doing this? What a peculiar outburst. I don't even know whether this is pro or anti. I think it's just like a melodic Tourette's thing yeah. that happens sometimes when I get in front of crowds. I'm not sure. Particularly apt one. This is the most uh, useful of all the forms of... <laughs> it's the, the most useful Tourette's. Yeah. yeah. If you're categorizing it. That sounds like a Nicholas Sparks novel for some reason. I don't know. I'm not sure I know who that is. Um, thank you guys so much for being here. How many of you have been seeing other shows here at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival? Awesome. Awesome. How, how many of you have, upon the sun coming out, uh, realized that you're allergic to Portland? <laughs> because I have. <laughs> like, I've just... Uh, I spent the last two days thinking I'm coming down with a cold before bumping into 20 other people who are like, yeah, I think I also am. And so apologize if I'm slightly... Mo- apologize. 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 If- apologize. <laughs> also, for the listeners at home, uh, just to set the scene, it's 1 p.m. on Sunday, the last day of a five-day festival, and it's been record-breakingly hot two days in a row. It broke 100 yesterday. It has. And I'm from London, so... I also appreciate a city that is in no way equipped to deal with this temperature. <laughs> I, I, I know what it's like, and I, I'm with you. I feel you. Just know that if it ever got to this temperature where I grew up, the country stops. And that's not even a joke. Like, it's the news. Yeah. If you've ever been in England where it's got anywhere into, like, the mid-90s, the front page of every newspaper will just be pictures of people shirtless in a park. <laughs> Like, that's not even a joke. That is what it is. And the news, and the, and the news headline is basically, it's hot. <laughs> like, this is newsworthy temperature. But I feel like Portland's kind of similar. You're like, I don't know how to deal with this. Like, I'm looking up, why, is, why does the sky look like a child's drawing of the sky? <laughs> that's not how skies are. There's some interesting side effects to this heat wave. I was getting uh, breakfast upstairs at Doug Fur here, and I overheard the server explaining to someone trying to order bagels that the company that makes bagels can't physically make bagels because over 95 degrees, you can't make bagels, which sounds like an excuse for like a hungover baker. <laughs> but uh, yeah, evidently, it, it's too hot for bagels, which uh, sounds like David Lee Ross memoir or something. Um, does anybody know if there's any actual science fact? Bagels are, are boiled. Is that how they made, right? Maybe. Here's my guess. Maybe it's something to do with... Is it sourdough? A bagel sourdough? Is there, like, some kind of... Like, yeah, the yeast won't... Someone, some of the audience just shouted yeast, which I presume... Again, I hope that was relevant to the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Not just another peculiar interjection. But, yeah, that, that's plausible, that maybe the yeast involved in the bagel-producing process. But it also, like, makes you think they must have been 
boiling these bagels outside? Like, weren't they indoors in a climate-controlled environment? Like, but again, this is put, like Britain would be the same. There are plenty of buildings. I'm sure a, a London-based bagelery uh, wouldn't necessarily be equipped with aircon or sufficient aircon. Okay. okay. That's my guess. Fine. Or, I'll, it's, I'll a, or it's a lazy bagel maker who's also in the park shirtless right now. <laughs> going, it's hot. Yeah, Portland can't do any extremes. I lived here for 10 years, and we'd have every couple of years, like, one snowstorm. The entire city shuts down. It's like half an inch of snow coating the streets. I've just worked out again why I feel so at home in Portland, because that, <laughs> that is exactly Britain. Um, every year, it snows at least once uh, for a couple of days, and every year, the country panics as if this thing has never happened before. <laughs> Uh, cars spin off the road. Um, local councils run out of salt <laughs> and grit. Like that's the thing. They're like, oh, we we didn't expect it to happen again this year, so we didn't think to stockpile any during the other 363 days when it wasn't happening. Uh, but but I do hate when people like I'm from Michigan originally, and uh, like I'm never gonna be like, we know how to handle snow. I was like, well, of course you need to have an infrastructure in place for the annual snow. Like, why would you spend all the money to have like snow plows at the ready for a once every ten year storm? Like, I'm not gonna call out Portland for that, even though we just did, I guess. But like, you know, well, here's what I think we should maybe do is things. team up. There must be some southern hemisphere countries that have the same problem in reverse. Well, like every June, July, it snows like at least like two days and the country panics so maybe we have some like snow plows on a timeshare <laughs> and then for the middle of four months they oh just go on God. a boat and get shipped between it's, it's got to be an app based thing obviously like what is the what is the Airbnb of snow plows like it's going to be this is a disruptive technology we're talking about here yeah I think, I think doing it on a podcast as well that's like legal copyright right <laughs> if not can someone run out and get us an envelope and a stamp <laughs> We'll mail the MP3 to ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, we should explain what this show is. Yeah. Right? So, so so this is um, the show is called Probably Science, and what we normally do is go through the week in science news with guest comedians. Uh, Andy and I both have a vague science background. Andy was an engineer. I did a math degree. Um, and but then sometimes we have special events where we bring on guest scientists and engineers and writers. And then sometimes for special special events like live shows at festivals, just like this one, we kind of combine the two and we have. Like some of everything, because we're greedy. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we should get on the first of those guests right now. Yeah, we were very lucky to have uh, in this year's lineup of performers someone who's not only hilarious, but is also currently employed as an environmental engineer, which is pretty awesome. Um, please welcome to the stage engineer slash comedian Ella Gale. Let's hear it for Ella. From Austin, Texas. Yeah, everybody from Austin is pretty smug about this weather. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure. Oh, it's hard for you? <laughs> you guys have reason to hate Portland also because, like, this city co-opted a slogan about how different it is. <laughs> like, keep Austin weird predates keep Portland weird. And what's, there's nothing less weird than just copying someone else's attempt <laughs> at being weird. Like, I am also a nonconformist. <laughs> like, the font is even the same. Like, Portland, we're better than that. Let's rethink this slogan thing. What? Well, is okay, there, that's the end of that. I was, uh, is there a synonym for weird that you could co-opt? <laughs> Curious. <laughs> Curious. <laughs> Bizarre. Odd. I don't, I don't have a... Yeah. It's, um, Keep Portland odd. Keep He's Portland odd. odd. Keep Portland slightly off. <laughs> Keep 
<laughs> Portland, remain unconventional. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what, what the most Portland thing in my time here was. I guess, like, clown houses is, like... A, is that still a thing? Are there still people that live full-time in, like, punk clown houses here? That was, there was a 2005 thing. That was there was, like, by the way, from the audience, there was a yeah from the left-hand side and a not really from the right, <laughs> which suggests that maybe they do exist, but in a diminished capacity. <laughs> I think it's an endangered species. Yeah, so I this, mean, is, this is a house of clowns. There used to be people that lived full time as clowns. I feel like up near Alberta, there was a house that's probably now like a, a, a what's the cliche? You know all the Portland cliches. It's one of those cliches. It's an artisanal something or other with people with like waxed beards. Um, but yeah, there was a house where people just lived like punk house style, like twenty of them, and they were like full time like angry clowns. It was sort of a Burning Manish vibe, like steampunky clowny. Are, are, there, uh, are there any Austin clown houses to that predate the Portland clown house? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. House of Clowns sounds like a direct-to-video yeah. <laughs> horror movie. It was horrifying. They, had, they were also the ones that did all the tall bikes. I'm sure tall bikes are still around. That can't be gone, yeah. We haven't gentrified out the tall bikes yet. Um, so there's just, you know, you weld three bikes on top of each other and then put on a top hat and, and ride with stilts or something. And, yeah. Is it like, like a fuck you to bridges? Yeah. <laughs> sort of is, sort of is. Uh, okay, so Ella, I want to know how you came to be... Well, we always ask our guests on, on normal episodes how, uh, what their background in science is, starting from like earlier school memories or anything that got you interested in the sciences in the first place. Uh, yeah, I, well, maybe this is going to make me seem like a fraud. I actually got a liberal arts degree the first time around. Oh. And uh, then I uh, graduated in 2009, and things were real bad. I could not get a job. And I was like, oh, I'm going to take some science classes and see how it goes and maybe do like environmental policy or something. And then I liked calculus so much, I was like, oh no, maybe I'll do an engineering degree. And then I went back to school for engineering. I think that's the opposite of a fraud. Like that's the exact, (laughs) because I I think I'm the fraud because I like enjoyed and pursued the sciences and did a mathematics degree and then crashed out and started telling jokes immediately. But you're sort of running both simultaneously, which, like, you're still working as an engineer. You're a super funny comic. Yeah. How do you, uh... uh, I meant that as the answer to the engineering. Anyway. uh, (laughs) Um, yeah, so how, how's it, do you still do, like, nine-to-five engineering? How do... Yeah. What, actually, let's start from the What kind of engineer are you? I'm an environmental engineer, so I do a lot of uh, erosion and sediment control, and I uh, do some surface water uh, engineering. So I design I design a lot of ditches. <laughs> it's really <What>? interesting. <laughs> Have you been drawn to anything? Um, do those kind of jobs follow where the need is in terms of like California is in a historic drought? Maybe it's getting better, but it's still in the middle of it. Is that like a thing where like people? Is there a gold rush for environmental engineers when stuff like that's happening? Like we got to get out there and fix this. Man, I actually there's more of a lag I think because uh, a lot of times environmental engineering will follow uh, policy changes. Okay, yeah. So uh, the EPA has been doing some stuff with like coal combustion residuals and new rules with those, mm-hmm. and uh, that's basically like a gold mine for my industry because uh, 
my company makes a lot of landfills, and so a lot of people need landfills now. And okay. so, but it's like, I think the policy changes are like kind of behind the droughts and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So then what, what goes into designing a ditch, if we can get a little technical for a second? I don't want to blow anybody's minds here, but... Uh... Yeah, so uh, you got to figure out how much water is going to be in that ditch. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the size of your watershed and how much it rains and how much impervious surface area you have. And then that helps you figure out, you know, what kind of flows you're going to have in your ditch, depending on the, the route the water takes. And then, uh, you know, you just need to line the ditch with something that's going to hold up to the speed of those flows. Makes sense to me. <laughs> Asked and answered. Are you guys glad you came to this comedy show? <laughs> so then what, what, uh, at what point during all these career changes and studying changes did you start to do comedy? Uh, I started to do comedy really seriously. I'd done improv in college, but I started to do stand-up seriously midway through grad school. Oh, cool. And my GPA dropped. Yeah. I, I can't imagine if I'd started in college, I, I don't think I would have finished, or I would have done the mat route and not done the job afterwards. Were you ever like, oh, fuck, this is so much more fun. Why am I investing so much time and effort into science? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but also, it was so early on, I was... You know, I was like a year out of finishing my degree, and like that early on in comedy, you can't be like, I'm gonna quit much, you know, like right, you can't. Right, right. Uh, Some do, and that's a terrible idea. Yeah, so I feel relatively good about my decision making process. Nice. Do you feel like we should bring out our fourth guest, Matt? I think we should. I think we should. We're very lucky to have, like, Portland is such a treasure trove of people who are uh, polymaths, who are doing lots of cool shit. And uh, our next guest is almost too long of a resume to memorize. <laughs> <laughs> almost. Uh, she's the online editor of Bitch Media. Oh, she's already here. I was going to give, like, a long preamble. <laughs> it's from Bitch Media. It's Sarah Merck. Hi. Let's hear it for Sarah. She's also the author of, of Sex from Scratch. She's written for The Mercury, The Stranger, uh, does the podcast Propaganda. She is a uh, science enthusiast and blogger and uh, author of a comic book that was hugely critically yeah, a comic claimed. series, yeah. A comic series, Oregon History Comics, yeah. Sarah Merck, once again. Yay. Okay, that was uh, the opposite order of how an introduction is supposed to go. Um, before I get started, I have an update for you guys. Yes, okay. Uh, about bagels. Oh, nice. Is, oh. I happen to have a friend who is a bagel baker here in Portland, and so I texted her and asked her, what's the deal with the bagel heat situation? Holy shit, you are a true journalist. <laughs> and, she, <laughs> and I was like, I've heard it's something to do with yeast, right? And, so, <laughs> and she said, yes, it does have to do with yeast, that uh, when it gets too hot... Yeast, yeast production uh, increases exponentially when the temperature goes up. And when, you get, when the bread gets overinflated, it collapses. So you have bagels collapsing on themselves like black holes. And so, <laughs> but this problem is easily remedied by having air conditioning. So okay. you just have to have air conditioning in the bakery and then it's just good to go. Lessons learned all around, guys. Uh, for all these DIY bakers trying to do their bagels outside. Just get inside, crank the AC. All these backyard garage bagel projects. <laughs> it's probably a cart. I mean, it probably is somebody. Like, I'm sure there's like an artisanal yeah. bagel cart, right? And that's probably not air conditioned. So, yeah, I bet there are those sort of home bagel labs that they get busted from time to time. <laughs> the feds look for the heat signature. <laughs> 
So, so Sarah's work uh, does include looking at um, women in science and, and gender biases in the sciences, which we talked about somewhat on past episodes, like with uh, Dr. Amy Parrish, we talked about how in the study of primates, there's like a bias towards comparing humans to chimpanzees when bonobos are just as close to us and are uh, less patriarchal and less like the shittier tendencies of humans <laughs> that we want to believe we have. Um, so how does, yeah, how does gender play into your uh, science studies and science writing? Oh, well, let's see. So yeah, so I write about um, science from a pop culture perspective mm -hmm. for Bitch. And so I, I did a column for Bitch for a while about the intersection of gender, media, and science. And so a lot of that was looking um, both at how science is reported on. So oftentimes scientists do a, a study, and then within the time it winds up being a headline news story, it gets really distorted to conform to uh, people's expectations around how gender works. And so, for example, there's there's... All the science out there that says that there's no such thing as a male brain or a female brain. But if you just sort of read the paper or watch on TV, you wouldn't necessarily think that because all the time there's reporting on scientists saying like, men think this way, women think this way. It's instinctual, it's from our caveman roots. And that's like all very bunk. And so I did I do some reporting on that, as well as looking at um, systemic discrimination in the fields of STEM that keep women and people of color out of those fields mm -hmm. and from getting to positions of power within those fields. So the brain thing, are you just saying that, that people are trying to point to actual physiological differences as opposed to just, so you're saying any sort of d differences in behavior are all learned and not innate, basically gender-wise? Yeah, that there's not, um, when, when you look at scans of, of brains of cisgender men and cisgender women, you don't see across the board patterns that are like, these are male patterns and these are female patterns. Mm -hmm. Actually, the biggest pattern you see is that there's no pattern. And that, <laughs> and that our brains are a, are a brilliant mosaic. And so there was just a recent study about uh, two years ago that was the largest study of male brains and female brains and trying to look for like, how do, is there something that uh, in our brain structure um, makes us think differently along gender lines. And what they found is, or really isn't. They tried to find patterns that were like, oh, this is a male brain, this is a female brain. And they only found them in about 1.8% of brains <laughs> conform to that, which in my case, that's not a pattern. That's like an outlier. Yeah, yeah. And in about 60% of brains, it was, um, you, there was absolutely no difference at all. It was all across the map. And uh -huh. so structurally, there's not something that's like, men's brains are hardwired this way and women's brains are hardwired that way. The differences in how we express ourselves and how we deal with situations comes from socialization, comes from culture, comes from the way we learn to interact with the world, not the way our brains are built to be in a certain uh, way. So that, what I've read about having like a football lobe and a shopping lobe, that's not true <laughs> at all? That's, that's bunk? Okay. Uh, well, you could be one of those outliers. Maybe okay. they scan your brain as just a football. football. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, this is the problem. <laughs> yeah, just a phrenology map. It's just just like every Tim Allen cliche, it's like tools are. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. That's so. So that you, you're saying that like those things uh, don't get published because they just don't conform to what people expect to see in those articles, and so no one wants to put that in front of them. Kind of. It's not exactly a sexy headline, you know. Yeah. And people like to read about like men are from Mars, women are from Venus, kind of things. And so when you have when that, well, I mean, like, of course, there's like lots of serious journalism outlets that um, really do great reporting on science. Um, but when you're, you know, trying to like simplify it into something that's kind of sexy, oftentimes people like to see um, what they expect to see, and that falls along gender normative lines. Mm -hmm. And so, and I mean, the idea that like we all have different brains is like it doesn't. It's like not that exciting. <laughs> you know, how do you build a headline around that? 
Um, but I think, it's a, I think it's actually a really exciting and, and cool idea because it shows how flexible gender is and it shows how flexible our bodies are and it shows how flexible our brains are. That it's not like you're born this way and you stay this way. It shows that like the ways that we interact with gender are built by our culture and that can change. And it's built by our society and that can change and we can learn and teach different ways rather than like, oh, this is an ingrained part of our body that explains this way. It right. just means, oh yeah, that comes from our culture, that comes from our history, that comes from the way that we learn. So that to me is actually a really exciting headline. So, it is. I would agree. Yeah. So if, if there isn't that difference, like how are we going to divide up society? Because I think we still need mm. two separate groups that we pitch against each other. <laughs> Jeez, I don't know. Well, maybe as a, as a Brit, you're better at explaining that because you've been dividing up the world for longer. But it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a proven winning strategy. There's nothing... Like, if you really want to provide lasting peace in a region, uh, just go in there in the 18, 1900s, divide it along racial lines, and then leave and hope it works out. So, uh, Northern Ireland, India, Pakistan, like, it doesn't stop winning. And uh, I, I highly recommend it. We're Make Britain great again, right? Yeah. Let's, let's do this. I think we're going to do tall and short bikes in Portland and see how it... <laughs> That's a pretty fair division, actually. That would yeah. pretty much represent old and new Portland perfectly. Yeah, $5,000 commuter bikes versus, like, 10-foot-tall tall bikes. Yeah. <laughs> have you guys ever ridden a tall bike? I have not. Is it worth doing? It's just as scary as it looks. <laughs> is, there, is there any, like, mechanical advantage to a tall bike? Is, are, they, are they claiming, like, it's in any way more effective as a transportation mode, or is it oh, just... Oh, no, it's just, it's just for fun. You're like... Is there an advantage to being silly and fun? No. <laughs> this is a science podcast, okay? So let's keep this straight down the line serious. <laughs> Tall bikes are, are really achieving their goal of just being silly and fun. They're not for your basic commute. Okay. Uh, but it is like extremely difficult and scary in my opinion. It's one of those things where you're like, you see people riding tall bikes and you're like, is that as difficult and scary as it looks to me? And my answer having ridden a tall bike is yes, it is just as terrifying and as bad of an idea as you think it would be. And I feel like once you're on it, you just have to ride it for the rest of your life. Right? Yeah, I mean, how yeah. do you get off of a tall bike? That's, you actually hit on a really important thing, which is getting on a tall bike is extremely difficult, but that's the easy part. The hard part is getting off again. I'm sure. Like one stoplight, and it's like both wrists are broken. How do you... What's the plan? Like, There's actually... You have, to, you have to do some mental physics, because you have to, cause it's all about your momentum. Mm. If, you go, if, you stop, if you slow down, the bike just like slowly falls over. Um, I once saw a recumbent bike slowly fall, I mean, a, a tall bike slowly fall onto a recumbent bike. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, it was like, Timber! <laughs> I feel like the only way I can envision getting off a tall bike is just riding it into a river. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just like float away and you're like, mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, just like straight off a bridge and like, <laughs> Um, I personally, you... like, I found a low, I literally, the way I did it, I found a low wall and, like, <laughs> rode along the wall until I could jump onto the wall and get off the bike. And then just let the bike keep going. Yeah, like, ah. <laughs> or you grab a tree branch. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Looney Tunes cartoon. 
just keeps going. It belongs to Portland now. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Someone else That's will just hop on it. <laughs> yeah. Just off of a bridge. Like you jump onto the bridge and someone who's already on the bridge jumps off onto the bike. Yeah. And that's the circle of life. could solve a lot of public transportation <laughs> problems. Yeah. Well, Portland used to have that. Portland, uh, the early, it was like the proto lift for bikes. I think even before my time, there were these bikes that were, were they white? It was one color, yellow, yellow bikes, right? And they were just free all over town. You just ride it until you don't want to ride it and put it there and someone else rides it? Or how did yeah. it work? But Most of those wound up in the river. People enjoying <laughs> yeah. your strategy of just stealing them and then throwing them into the river. But it was theoretically like a free thing. You don't lock it up when you're finished. Yeah, with it. You yeah. Just... I mean, a lot of places have done this. It's, a, it's called the Yellow Bike Program. Uh-huh. And you paint a fleet of bicycles bright yellow and leave them around the city. So it's kind of like an anarchistic bike share program. Yeah. You know, lots of cities now have bike share programs where you pay to borrow a bike for a certain period of time. It's like that, but it's all free and volunteer run. And it always ends in the theft of those bikes and then yeah. being painted not yellow. <laughs> I, I, in, in every city I've seen it in, it, it results in um, a bicycle wealth redistribution plan where <laughs> the bikes are just stolen by people and then, the, and then they ride them around. Yeah. That's kind of what happens at Burning Man, where everyone's supposed to be living this utopian thing where they share everything. But if you don't have a bike there, you're kind of fucked. Have you been to Burning Man? Uh, Matt and I went this last year. Yeah, I've been twice now. I'm ashamed of myself. Um, <laughs> it is really fun. It's, but yeah, it's everyone... one more trip away from being a clown. Yeah, exactly. I mock the things that I secretly am. Um, but yeah, it's really cool, except the first time someone gets their bike stolen, not even stolen, someone just like mistakenly take the wrong bike because they're all just like kind of trashed bikes. Um, and then once you're bikeless, you're like, well, fuck, I can't get by this whole week without a bike. So you just take, it's like the opposite Wait, of you, pay it forward. It's did, like everyone keeps stealing each other's bikes because they got theirs stolen. Um, did it's just you steal shitty... somebody's bike? No, I never did. No, but I'm saying I, I saw it happen where people would just grab it. I think once you lose your bike, you're like, well, they did it to me, so I'll do it. It's like the opposite of, of pay it forward. Yeah. Is he telling the truth or did he still? I never stole any bikes. I, never st- I brought my own bike. I did see him with like five or six bikes by the end. <laughs> <laughs> like he was, more, he was mostly bikes. <laughs> and, and, and then like he spent the next month or so when he came back selling bikes. <laughs> I'm a bad person. Remember when you couldn't do the podcast for a month or so because you were selling bikes? Oh, that's right. Bike month. Yeah, I forgot about that. Take a little break from the show. Um, I'm curious, Ella, did you encounter much uh, resistance um, growing up in, in getting... Like, the fact that you didn't get into the sciences until later, was that at all from anything you could sort of see as, as systemic pushes growing up toward, away from STEM jobs or... Yeah, it's I, I I've thought about that and like oh why didn't I well like why why did it take a while why didn't I pursue this earlier and uh, I was a really good math student like I it was always a, I was like a year ahead and stuff and uh, I was in the international baccalaureate prob- uh, program and I went into the easier math class and nobody was like no you need to be in the the harder math class, yeah. and part of me wonders, like, if I was a guy, would I, somebody would have surely like pulled me aside and been like, "This is ridiculous. Yeah. You just need to take the." You get a goodwill hunting speech from somebody. Yeah. yeah, and I, but then you know, like, that's that's the frustrating thing, right? Is like you never know if they were just like, "Oh, she doesn't want to do this," like, because right. I think I might have pushed back and been like, "Well, I don't really care about math that much." Uh, but yeah, I wonder. It, that's definitely a thing that's crossed my mind. And then what's the sort of sp- gender split in your branch of engineering? It's Environmental engineering is much better than other fields. Right. Uh, and 
I have no data on actual numbers, uh, but there's definitely women engineers in my office. And like as I've gone to conferences and stuff, um, a lot of young women engineers entering the field, it seems like. And then I guess I'll see, you know, I don't know if, surely some of that is the result of more women in engineering now, but maybe some of it is like older women leaving the field too. So I don't know, hopefully it's getting better, cool. but um, yeah. Because I've heard that a lot of the like this the oft quoted gender gap seventy nine percent thing is not job to job comparisons, but just overall women and men in the workplace. And if you look at the top ten highest paying and the bottom ten paying jobs, there's a much different gender makeup of those jobs. Like those top ones are STEM and much more male dominated, and the bottom ones are like social work type jobs. That You're are you talking about the wage gap? Yeah. So women getting paid seventy nine cents on the dollar? Yeah. Yeah. Well. I mean, the thing is, there's so many different factors that contribute to the wage gap, including right. race. It's a race. It's a gender and racial wage gap. So, 79 cents is the average. That's what white women are paid compared to white men. Mm -hmm. uh, but it gets lower if you go down for women of color. Um, there's a whole bunch of different factors that contribute to that, including uh, that women are much more likely to be minimum wage workers, low-paid workers. Um, men are more likely to be in top CEO positions. You know, if you look. Um, if you look at CEOs around the world, so a lot of factors play into that, not just what jobs women wind up in or what fields they're in, but how much those fields get paid. But I mean, even if you look at, the New York Times did great data analysis on this. If you're somebody who likes numbers and likes data around the wage gap, they looked at, um, you know, they looked across like so many industries in the United States and looked at, okay, women, uh, it's, it's all cis, cisgender people who had graduated from college, um, who don't have kids, and they're in the same field, is there a wage gap that persists? And it still does. They still mm -hmm. found, even in the field of journalism, um, which you know is near and dear to my heart, there's still a wage gap that persists um, regardless of education level, regardless of whether you've had kids. Uh, all in, in a job-to-job -job comparison or just men and women in the field? In both a job-to-job -job comparison and in the field. Yeah. And so you have to look at like, okay, so why is it that if, if you know, if, even in a field like journalism, why are men getting higher paid positions or why are they getting into those positions that are paid more? Mm -hmm. You know, that, that speaks to like who gets promoted, whose work is seen as valuable. That's what that says to me. Right, right. And definitely like women and men with uh, similar science resumes, men are consistently ranked as like more promising and more capable. Mm. Uh, by both men and women. Which there, was, there was just a really interesting slash uh, very depressing study of uh, college professors, and they looked at, um, okay, let's try and figure out if there's, a, if there's a gender bias in how college professors are rated by students. And so they did an online course where they had teachers teach the course, but you didn't, you didn't ever actually see your professor, and, you, and they had gender, they had uh, male names versus female names, so like, you know, Jim versus Jane, and, but the same professors, the same teachers. And at the end of the courses, the students rated the professors with, with male names higher than the professors with female names. And so when that's, that's significant, not only because it looks at how we see the work of men, you're just like, oh, like these students are more likely to see professors being good when they have male names, even though they've done the exact same work. Um, but also because that depends on, your, your job depends on those student evaluations. So when you look at, at professors, it's just one field of many, many, many fields where like, how much you get paid and how much and whether you're promoted depends on somebody's evaluations of you. And so gender definitely plays into how we evaluate those roles. Mm -hmm. That's my rant about the wage gap. <laughs> Thank you for bringing it up. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's really interesting and really, uh, yeah, there's so many factors that go into, like, I, 
this, the comedy festival sort of has an analogy to some of this stuff, I think, because um, we try to make this as diverse a lineup as we can, and we encourage, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of straight white dudes in comedy, and uh, we can't have the whole festival be that, even if there are more of them in comedy. Um, and then at a certain point, you find yourself uh, wondering, like, well, basically the, the ratio, because I, I see all the numbers of, of how people submit to this, because we built this whole system to handle submissions from around the country, and it's, it's a lot of people. So we can see all the data uh, and get a pretty good cross-sectional look at what comedy in the country is right now. And I think pretty consistently, like, three-quarters of the people submitting are men. And um, I'd love to see that even out more, but then you're also like, well, if... If this isn't a job that draws women, who am I to force that? Because it is a weird job that draws misfits and is sort of sad. So it's like, do you want to push? It's, I mean, it's bad to make that analogy to STEM jobs because that's not a sad career to be in and we should get people into those jobs. But like, you know, how much obligation do I have to overcome uh, these societal pressures that make men think they should go talk about their dicks on stage and make women think better of that and go make something of themselves, you know? Well, I see a lot of that with, um, in just in my life, I've seen a lot of opportunities when there's, when there's a situation where you can raise your hand and say, I want to volunteer, I'm pitching myself for this. Yeah. White dudes are excellent at pitching themselves <laughs> and will volunteer for stuff at a way higher rate than anybody else, honestly. And so, like, for example, I run a, um, a community science night here in Portland. It's just like a super volunteer, informal, fun thing over the summer. It's called Summer of Science. And it's three or four people give different presentations about different types of science they're interested in. And so um, in the past years, I've just had been like, anybody who wants to present, like, tell me what you want to talk about. And it's been 100% mm, white dudes who <sighs> volunteer to talk about things. And so I've had to like go and recruit, and once I ask women, I'm like, hey, you're really smart, can you come talk at my thing? And they're like, oh yeah, sure. And people of color too, I'll be like, can you come present at this thing? And they're like, yeah, sure. But, and even this year, I've had to, um, I've, recru the, I've, I've recruited a bunch of people to come speak, but the only people who have volunteered to speak are white dudes. Mm -hmm. And so that's like a cultural force <laughs> that I'm trying to always sort of get around, is like, what is with this cultural force of like white dudes being more up for like pitching themselves and volunteering and say like, yes, I am, I am eligible for this, I am qualified for this, whereas we have a lot of cultural forces on women and people of color saying like, maybe you should second guess this, maybe you aren't quite qualified for this, like maybe you shouldn't volunteer for this. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think a way to get around that is recruiting people, not just having it be like, okay, come one, come all, it's equal if we say come one, come all, because it's actually, you're going to wind up with a less diverse and less quality pool, I think. Interesting, yeah. And like stand-up is like the most egoistic thing. It's, <laughs> it's like, yeah. I'm going to stand on stage with a microphone and talk, and people will be interested. I have no discernible theatrical skills. I have no training. I'm not throwing anything or making anything disappear. It's just my words and inflection, and you will listen to it and pay me money for the privilege. <laughs> I think you see that with podcasts, too. I mean, the majority of, of, um, of podcasts, this is changing so fast and in such a good way, but, like, the majority of podcasts are hosted by men, by white men, and um, you have to look at, like, why is that? Why are, if you just have, like, an open field for anyone can make a podcast and upload it, why is it, why is it that dudes are more likely to take that step and say, I am qualified to host this show, everybody should listen to my podcast? Well, I think in, the, in our case it's because we are qualified to host this show. Um, <laughs> And our voices need to be heard. Uh, my, my best friend and I uh, run a podcast, very funny comedian Katie Stone in Austin. And at one point, she said to me something along the lines of, like, I, I want 
I want our podcast to have content, basically. Like, I don't think it's interesting if I just talk. And part of me is like, I don't agree, because she's very funny, and talking to her is one of my favorite activities. But also, it's like, oh, no, maybe that's good to, like, believe you should have more than just, <laughs> you know. I have, I have a thing to say. Like, Well, and did, did you guys do a lot of second-guessing around, like, oh, would anybody really want our podcast? Like, are we really that funny? Like, should we really even have a show? I feel like we've done some of that, but I, I don't know. I have a great time. I don't, I don't have as many <laughs> doubts about our validity as yeah. podcasters. Do you feel like you've had to assert yourself more than if you were a man in your comedy career, Ella? I don't think so. I mean, the scene in Austin is great, and it's pretty supportive of women. Yeah. And I've had overwhelmingly positive experiences in like kind of everything that matters, I would say. Um, so I don't necessarily feel like in Austin I've had to assert myself any more than like any comedian who has to get out there. Right. Uh, I mean, like obviously there's a, a, a foul underbelly in every comedy scene <laughs> of uh, just gross, yeah. gross What's dudes, your one gross dudes yeah. being gross, and uh, every woman has. And I think that's like a thing that keeps women out is. Uh, you know, like getting hit on or having like a weird, ex if you have a weird experience at your first open mic, do you, do you keep doing yeah, it? Yeah, why would you? Or, uh, um, so once you wade through that and you get even like the next step up, it gets way, way better. But I think that's also when we're sort of talking about data and there is that sort of feedback both with STEM and with comedy where fewer women pursue it because there are fewer women in it. So it's sort of propagates that idea that this isn't a job for women, so then fewer women go for it, so then fewer women are in it, and so on. And Some, then uh, well, Sorry, what are you going to say? Oh, sometimes my office feels really, really balanced, because uh, our office, um, our branch manager is a woman, which is a reason I took the job. I was right. like, oh, I like this. But then it's like, oh, no, there's, there's three women engineers out of like an office of 15 people. That's not really like so you're the that kind of, many. You're the outlier at that office. Oh, hello. <laughs> what, what even happened there? That was bizarre. The screen was taped up, and it, uh, it's... Oh, and it fell down? Not interesting, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just turned around, and I thought there was just the dullest ghost. <laughs> the, the backdrop basically just... From my perspective, the backdrop just started flapping apropos of nothing. But, like, it's with the Kill Rockstars logo, so it's like a ghost that really likes uh, one specific record label <laughs> and wants you to know about it. But then, yeah, I think with both with science and with comedy... Not only are there fewer women in it, but also because of those general reasons, because of greater self-promotion self and greater outside promotion and higher dropout rate uh, of women, there's also a concentration... The gender concentration gets more pronounced as you go up the ladder. So not only are there more men than women in the job, but also there are even more men than women at the higher levels, which further gives that idea that, okay, well, women can do it, but only men can master it. Like that sort of false notion that yeah, like a, wo a woman can be in science, but like the top professor should be a man, mm -hmm. which then further pushes women out of wanting to join in the beginning. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think the important thing that I take away from that is that feedback loop doesn't have to continue. You know, I think people oftentimes like throw up their hands and they're just like, well, comedy is like a male-dominated field, so that's why our, all, our whole comedy festival is dudes. And that is not something that, it doesn't have would, to be By the way, way. We're not, it's not all dudes, it's pretty even. I know. All <laughs> things considered, we just have to overcome this unbalanced 
submission. Right, and you have to, like, it has, it's something that you have to take on the work of actually doing. Yeah. Like, if you just, like, yeah, well, our comedy festival is all dudes because the comedy field is all dudes, that means you're not doing that work. And I see that yeah. as the work of people who are in positions of power, like booking a comedy show, to say, oh, there's something unbalanced here. I'm going to go recruit somebody, or I'm going to go outside the regular field of people who I see applying for this all the time and find some, like, really good new person who's not being seen as much or not being mm. talked about as much, that it takes work on behalf of the people in those positions of power, whether it's the branch manager of your you know, engineering firm or the person at the top of a, you know, a pharmaceutical company or a comedy booker to say, like, there's something wrong here and it will be better if we fix it. And how can we do that? We have to like, go outside what we know and find new people and find new voices. So, but it can be done. It just takes some work. And I think we're heading in that direction. Like another thing that's interesting, and this is getting farther away from science, but whatever. Um, with the festival is like after we email everyone their acceptances and announce the lineup, there's always people dropping out, usually because of other career opportunities that come up. And like over the past two months, almost all of those dropouts have been women and people of color who've been pulled up to do good things career-wise, whether it's good half-hour specials and things. It's like, you're making us less diverse, but also it's a good sign that people are kind of trying to hire and uh, promote in a corrective way, sort of, for how biased the field has been. So that's good for everyone else except the festival? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, how does it... Does you, Ella, does your work... Like, how do they feel about your comedy? Is there, like, a... Because I had a very short crossover between... Like, I, I sort of had, like, shitty tempy jobs. I never had, like, a full-time proper job that people could also be like, hey, how's your comedy thing going? Uh, for like a year, I uh, stressed, I like just basically pretended like I only did improv because uh, I thought nobody would ever try to come to a show. <laughs> <laughs> I like improv. I don't want to talk shit about improv. Um, but more recently, because I t- I, it's impossible not to talk about right, it's like I spent, you know, at least 20 hours a week doing it and yeah, it's a huge part of my life and a way higher priority for me than my job. And so, uh, <laughs> this is going uh, out to the public to hear, by the way, just yeah. so you know. Yeah, this is and ditches <laughs> we're talking about, Ella. This is ditches. Hey, man, ditches uh, get ditches shit done. <laughs> Can I start an offshoot called Ditch? Ditch yeah. magazine. <laughs> I was actually thinking of that. If if bitch and ditch teamed up, yeah, what would that be? It'd be like uh, a an engineering slash feminist pop culture magazine about dirt about um, dirt the real dirt on ditches <laughs> so at this point I actually don't know what I know uh, that my boss has seen my comedy and didn't say a lot about it was like oh it's good <laughs> and uh, that's about it otherwise uh, I Aside from being like, I'm going to this festival. I talk about shows after I do them, but not before, so nobody tries to come. Right. That's my strategy. So they don't fly out from Austin and just all show up weirdly in Portland. (laughs) (laughs) We're here. We're here to support you. Oh. I just imagine, like, dirt-covered lab coats. Is that what they wear? I don't know what a ditch designer uh, looks like. How much of your work is theory, and how much is actually... I was about to say in the field and realized that would be terrible. But... No, it is. Uh, I I go to f- I literally go to fields sometimes. Um, I do visit construction sites, kind of uh, separate from the ditch design work. 
But uh, yeah, I go out to construction sites and I take a look at their erosion and sediment controls, which is basically just trying to keep the dirt on a construction site from getting out. And then I write very boring reports about it. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was writing up one of my reports and I had a photo of some heavy equipment. Uh-huh. Uh, construction equipment, and I don't know that much about construction because that's not really like the angle I'm approaching it from. And my boss was like, "Oh, add the names of this equipment in this photo to this to your report." And I was like, "Oh no!" And I didn't know how to be like, "I don't know what any of this is." <laughs> I just like, know I just know what the hole is that they leave. Like, dark blue. <laughs> Diggy <wheels>. truck. <laughs> Track tractor spade. <laughs> Diggy McDigface? Is that a possible name? Dennis. Of a piece of uh, yeah. It'd be kind of fun just to make up names, though. I did. I, in my head, I was like, uh, this is very funny that I don't know. And then I'm pretty sure I, some of them were wrong, and I'm like, s- still like, the one person who reads that report, I hope, is like, what? It's like, what the fuck is a <laughs> shovel tank? It looks like. Yeah. <laughs> Hole monster. Yeah. <laughs> Ground eater. Yeah. The dream roller. <laughs> dream roller, why? So, Elle, I'm curious. Um, when I was an engineer, it was uh, very cutthroat in in college. Like, as far as people like teaming up on projects or like sort of icing people out, there was a lot of like strange social dynamics. What was it like for you socially in college in terms of the collaborative projects and things? I, I didn't I didn't find it cutthroat at all. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, maybe it's because I was in grad school. I wasn't getting an undergrad degree, yeah. so you know everybody was like grown ups. Yeah, it was <laughs> mostly grown ups and people who were out of school, and also people who were good at what they were doing already, and not like you know needing to like edge out the right. competition. Also, why would engineering? I mean, there's like there's like a real need for engineers, right? It wasn't, it wasn't that hard to get a job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, no, I didn't find it cutthroat. I find comedy much more cutthroat and competitive. Not cutthroat, but definitely competitive because like there is only, only one person does get that, you know, that show or that gig or whatever. Yeah, so. yeah. Do you also maybe find it more competitive because that's actually what you want to be doing? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think there's definitely times at work where I'm like, oh, if, if I wanted to be an engineer really this thing that just happened would upset me but yeah i'm kind of just like well, this is fine yeah they can have that job yeah like i'm not i'm not gunning at uh, my engineering job i'm right. not one of the gunners what kind of engineer were you again andy i was electrical for a little while and then i worked for a company does anybody remember pixel works there's a company in portland or in tualatin actually nobody i don't know why you would um <laughs> There was I think one I told whoop at the back of the room, but that could have just been for the concept of Portland. Is that, oh, it's, that's my former coworker, Kendall All. Can I, can I tell... Uh, yeah, I can name names. Why, why wouldn't I be able to? That's Kendall, who's, uh, whose mother wrote uh, Clan of the Cave Bear. Oh, I Any love that fans book. Of, Yeah. Kendall and I worked together at Pixelworks. And that's why I moved to Portland. I moved to Portland in 2001 after the dot-com boom dried up in San Francisco and uh, 9-11 happened. I was like, oh, no, the jobs aren't coming back. This is uh, it's going to be a long dry spell. So I either, I either was going to move back to Boston, where I'd been after college, to work for Raytheon and uh, do defense contracting work, which post-9-11 would have been very lucrative, but I would have been working on a missile uh, on a... Um, radar system that was in violation of the anti-ballistic missile treaty. So I was like, I don't know if I'll feel as great about that as going to Portland and working on chips that go into TVs. God, that's, I'm okay with 
more TVs. It's not the best thing, whatever. I definitely um, have no moral qualms about my ditches. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, it's very, you can sleep well at night knowing you're helping water get dispersed. Yeah. yeah. That, that ditch used to be an Afghanistan family. <laughs> <laughs> You monster. <laughs> but the Briton would say that, yeah. Was that? Just <laughs> bringing up colonialism again, that's all. I think we did a very good job with that region as well. If you look, <laughs> if you look around there, again, there's nothing to see that's... It's all fine. It's all fine. <laughs> so I just thought of something that's like pretty topical and environmental engineering related, but also a big bummer. Um, was there much fallout, Ella, in the world of environmental engineering from the Flint water situation? Uh, or was that not really? I, yeah, I don't think, uh, not where I'm working, because yeah. I think, um, but it is, it is definitely, like, that's definitely, like, my, my people's failure. Yeah. Right? I, wasn't like, play, I, I wasn't putting fingers. I'm just so playing. I guess, you know, like, environmental engineering is... Uh, really important, right? Yeah. Like, we're the people who make sure that the waste treatment plants work and that uh, the drinking water is safe and whatnot. But there hasn't been much... Like, I've, I've hardly heard people talking about it. I think I heard one of my coworkers being, like, just talking a little trash about a news story and was like, they don't even understand the, like... that it was from the, uh, the lack of... Um, uh, anti-corrosive chemicals and not because the Flint River was dirty. And it's like, man, kids got poisoned. People get it's to be mad. Like, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, the general public doesn't need to understand exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. um, but what did, I, what did actually happen, given that... So they switched their water source from uh, the Detroit public water supply to the Flint River. Uh -huh. And so I think what a lot of people think is that the Flint River was dirty, and that's why people got poisoned, but that's not what happened. Basically, they didn't add anti-corrosives to the water system. And so, right, the water goes from, uh, you know, its source through, like, a series of pipes. Right. And uh, a lot of those pipes are um, lead pipes. And so if um, the properties of the water, like, are corrosive, lead will leach into the water, but you can add chemicals to prevent that from happening, basically. Um, so, we do have a lot of super old infrastructure in the country, like a lot of lead pipes that haven't been replaced. So they didn't add what they needed to add to keep lead from leaching into the system from the old pipe system. So they could have still legitimately used the Flint River and not poison kids. It was just the lack of an additive. That is my understanding, yes. Holy shit. <laughs> See? Brits aren't that bad. It's all Americans. <laughs> I, I think I should take responsibility as a Michiga Michigander. It's on us. It's not on engineers. Like, that's where I grew up. And uh, I, I don't know. I'll take this one, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it was a nice reminder that, like, the things we're doing, you know, ditches and all, like, really do matter and are yeah. worth, like, thinking about and taking responsibility for and knowing that um, there are for sure lives at stake. Like, environmental engineers save more lives than doctors, right? Just through basic sanitation. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Nobody gets cholera anymore very often. <laughs> <laughs> but Matt just got whooping cough this year. <laughs> I, I, I legit did get whooping cough because it turns out that was the vaccine scare in 1980 in Britain and my mom is gullible. <laughs> It was that was the that was the measles vaccine of its day, and to the point that even after I sort of messaged my mom going, "Hey, did I get vaccinated for this as a kid?" Because I think I've got it now, and she's like, 
and she was st- she was like worried that I was getting the vaccine now she's like don't it's dangerous <laughs> you could get brain damage I'm like firstly that was if you're a kid and secondly that wasn't true anyway and thirdly I can't breathe right now and that's, and that's not good I've got I've got a 19th century illness going on right now <laughs> like I'm a, I sound like a Dickens I sound more like a Dickensian orphan than normal <laughs> So, yeah, that, that happened to me. Yeah, but you're right. That, that you, you do probably save more. Like, one, in, one environmental engineer can save a lot more lives than one doctor. But they prob- But you still don't get called on planes in an emergency. Yeah, which is, uh, which is great. Yeah. So we're more in the background, but still uh, very important. And I think like, a, a reason that attracted me to it was, like, oh, protecting human health and the environment, hopefully. Uh, yeah. Like you can feel like you're doing something productive every day and not making TVs or whatever I was doing. <laughs> yeah, at the very least, I feel like most of what I'm doing isn't making anything worse. Yeah. So. And then at night, you're making people happy. I feel like you have the ultimate in fulfillment career-wise, Ella. You can do both day and night, you're doing good things for people. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how your life would be different if you did go work for the Department of Defense, though. Oh, my God. I'd just be a Boston bro. I'd be living in Somerville. I'd be a wicked rich, but... Uh, <laughs> kind of a dick to be honest uh, do you no, think you'd be know. a spy I, oh man I, I would have had to actually get clearance of some kind mm-hmm. so I don't know if I would have passed background checks I think back then even like pot was, was a no go <laughs> like when I graduated college it was 99 and it was still the dot com boom was in full effect and so like there were tons of jobs um, and the NSA tried to recruit people at my campus and um, they didn't realize that they don't have that much cachet because there are startups that are paying big money and they're like, oh, we're the NSA. We're so exclusive. Everyone wants to work for us. We're the best of the best. Um, so they made a point at this job fair of saying how hard it was to get the job and how many background checks you have to pass. Like, only the best. So they signed up a bunch of people and then no one actually showed up to the interviews because like, fuck this. I can smoke pot and make six figures right out of school at this startup. My friend went to the interview and he got the offer because no one else showed up because they were all successfully scared away. So, so good job, is, NSA. Is, the, is he like... He didn't take the job. He just got offered it. I was going to say, is he like up on all the gossip now? Yeah. That man, Edward Snowden. (laughs) (laughs) A friend of mine did work on the Patriot missile, which is a pretty sweet thing. You don't have to feel conflicted about because it's a missile that only takes out missiles. And I heard stories about how amazing that thing is. Uh, like it, it didn't work very well in the first Gulf War, but the newer versions, I guess, it's like hitting a bullet out of the sky with a bullet, and there's it's no like actual... The, the Dexter of missiles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, 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 <laughs> yeah. it's the missile code man. <laughs> perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, all, all the Patriot does is just hit a missile and make it blow up with its own... Like, it has nothing explosive on it. It's just a ballistic... It's just a projectile. It's like the fastest thing in most... And now they've been testing them and like it's 100% I don't know if they've used it in combat but he said they did eight, eight of them in white sands and they all hit the missiles they were trying to hit so maybe I would have done that I don't know what was the question again <laughs> I think we're just trying to work out who's the best and who's the worst person at this table okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm the worst so Sarah, were you ever drawn as a kid to the sciences like career-wise? Did you ever think about it? Or? Yeah, definitely growing up, I wanted to be an archaeologist and was really into archaeology. And then as a teenager, I came up here to go to the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry oh. intensive archaeology camps. Um, did anybody here go to Hancock Field Station? Any OMSI kids? 
No, I'm all alone. Well, if you're if you are like hardcore about wanting to be an archaeologist as a teenager, the Oregon Museum of Science and History is the place to go, and it was awesome for me. I think I was like. I just graduated from eighth grade, so I was like 13, and came up here to like this nerd camp that was like a whole summer long working on uh, fossil digs in eastern Oregon. Mm-hmm. And it was, <laughs> uh, it made me realize I did not want to be an archaeologist Aww. because it's, uh, I don't know if you've ever been out to eastern Oregon, but it's like blazingly hot. It's like high desert, super hot, and they take you, we went to like, actual fossil digs, which I was like, oh, cool, like, this is going to be so sweet. Actual fossil dig is on, uh, like, a mountain, that the name of the mountain is called Sorefoot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and it is just basically, like, a super tall pile of, like, of just, like, no trees, nothing can grow there. It's all, um, it's, uh, was, you know, mud that flowed down from, from lava when volcanoes exploded, super hot mud flowed all over the state. And so it's like, sweet, this is a prehistoric mud flow for miles, and you just, like, sit here, and you get assigned, like, a, you know, a, a six-by-six-foot square of mud, of old mud, and they're like, okay, here's a dental pick. You're, <laughs> you're looking for something that is, looks just like all the other rocks, but is a little bit shinier and is about half the size of your pinky fingernail. Have a fun eight hours. <laughs> like, we'll see you in like eight hours. And so even like best case scenario, you like you're like with this dental pick on the side of a mountain in like the hundred degree heat, like looking for you know a, a tooth of like a tiny hypertragulus, like a prehistoric mouse. And like I can do that for about. 15 to 30 minutes, yeah, and yeah. then I'd be like, I'm going to go read a book in the shade. That's I feel like that's guys. something that would be invented by like a dystopian future government <laughs> as a punishment. Like, yeah. And that was like, this, that was like really fun for all the kids involved, except for me, who was like... This is bullshit. This is bullshit. Wait, I'm, so there were kids who were into it? Oh, they yeah, were like, yeah. yeah, I want my six by six plot, and, my <laughs> and they were just like... I was the only kid who was not into it. Um, <laughs> so, so I would like, I did that, you know, we had like all day out there and I would just bring books and like go sit in the shade and read and be like, oh, sorry, I didn't find anything on the dig today. So, <laughs> Did you get like bullied by like the, like the cool kids at the archaeology camp who oh, were like, no. how come you're not pulling your weight? <laughs> yeah. How many well, like snapping like, and dance fighting? I don't know. It was like, it was like a cool community of these were all the kids who had who were like super nerdy in their schools who opted to come to archaeology camp for the whole summer. And so there was this was like the outcasts and so nobody would really bullied each other, but people were super excited about their own stuff and didn't understand why I wasn't as excited about it. That they were like, "Look, like I found this tiny fragment of a Mayohippus fibula." And I'd be like, "Cool." You know. I'm going to go read my book in the shade. Have fun yeah. with that. I'm going to be a different so. category of nerd now. <laughs> <laughs> and so, no, there wasn't bullying. There was just like people, you know, and that's what I love about a lot of nerds in my life is they're like super joyful about their own discoveries and their own curiosity. And it's not like, it's not a negative thing. Yeah. That's like the kind of nerds I like aren't like super negative about other people. They're just like excited about what they themselves are into. Uh, speaking of which, I think we, we might need a correction here because we got pulled up on this by an archaeologist or a I can't remember if it was an archaeologist or a paleontologist. But oh, she, wait. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she wrote in a couple of weeks ago because we made we said this. We were talking about archaeology and then talking about fossils, and then she was like, yeah, archaeology ain't fossils. Archaeology is human stuff, and it's paleontology when it's like anything non-human, pre-human. Good and, to know. And uh, yeah, I just, I just don't, I just, I, I don't want to get another correction. 
And the way to remember it is Raiders of the Lost Archaeology. That's the stuff. And not a joke, it's just a mnemonic. You're welcome. I just helped you be interesting at a party and you guys are mad that it was a bad piece of wordplay. Yeah. You're, now you're going to know archaeology involves human stuff. What kind of party is that? A mid-2000s Portland clown house party. <laughs> Someone <What>? angling for an invite? <laughs> Yeah, so I decided I didn't want to be an archaeologist after all, or a paleontologist after all. Um, and but now, you know, I love reading about science. I love writing about science. I like um, thinking about science. So mm-hmm. now it's more just uh, something I do for fun than like I don't. I don't know. There's so many different types of sciences you can get into, and I guess I didn't really realize that there were other jobs besides like sitting in a lab, looking at a microscope, doing super minutia, super detail stuff. I'm not a super detail oriented person. Instead, I like telling stories, and so um, that's my favorite part of science is learning those stories and telling those stories. Nice. I'm curious, out of this audience, how many of you people are working or have worked in like STEM? type fields, STEM jobs, by a show of hands or applause. Well, let's do applause because sure, that yeah, we can hear on the recording. The... Yeah. I think that's probably... All the scientists cool. raise their hands. Yeah. <laughs> so polite. I bet it's like a quarter of the audience. Oh, uh, how many PhDs do we have in the audience by applause? Give us one, <laughs> Portland, please. We did a San Francisco show and it was like 10% PhDs, you guys. Um, not to call you out, but let's finish our degrees. Let's get but back that was, out there. That was a show we specifically did in a science museum. That's true. This is a bar, so maybe that's... <laughs> that was a science night, yeah. That's a pretty high percentage of, of STEM, though. Like, yeah. Out of those, how many are women? By applause. All right, sweet. My math says that was a third of the third. I don't know. Out of those, how many, um, what else is a good uh, piece of data to gather? Any environmental engineers? Yay! Wow. No shit! Wow, awesome, awesome. Who, who's that over there? Oh, hey. Hi. You, hey, Caitlin, do you do the same kind of environmental engineering as Ella? Uh, I don't do ditches. I do a lot of, like, um, wastewater design and wetland remediation. Nice. She said she does wastewater design and welling. remediation? Wetland delineations. Oh, okay. Here in the Portland area? Yeah. Where are the wetlands that you're working on? <laughs> um, well, I actually, I do. I have a lot down in Roseburg and on the coast. They're just kind of where my clients have property. Oh, cool. Cool. Uh, do, que- do we have any questions? Because we've got a little bit of time left. Like, do we have any questions for the panel? We don't have a microphone in the audience right now, so uh, I guess one of uh, Andy or I will repeat the question back weirdly into the microphone so that people listening afterwards can hear. But uh, any questions for anyone on the panel? That someone was applauding at the back there. Was that your, <laughs> have you learned to not put it? Was that someone applauding like, oh, yes, I have a question? <laughs> or, or applauding the concept of me repeating the question back into the microphone? There might not be any questions. It might be a question-free day. Nobody? Oh, right oh, there. Suddenly starting five hands straight up. Yeah, what wait, was it's a white man. Come on, can you please just... <laughs> Can we lean in a little bit as an audience, guys? <laughs> Ella, is that your name? Yeah, that's me. How much does your career come into your, your, the material for your comedy, or how much do you avoid it? So the question there was how much, how much of Ella's career comes into her comedy? Uh, actually, I think more lately, um, I, hadn't, uh, I hadn't written that many like, jokes about engineering, and then, I don't know, as a comedian, you kind of have to think about like, what is your unique voice, and what do you have to offer to like, the world that nobody else is offering? And so kind of, I was like, oh, I'm going to write some like, erosion and sediment control jokes. <laughs> 
And, uh, and then I did, and I, I put some of them on Twitter, and that was fun, and then immediately somebody started tweeting at me, like, their erosion and sediment control jokes. And I got so mad. I was like, no, man, this is my thing. Like, it's like starting a turf war. Uh, turf like, war. Literally. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes, no. I just thought yeah. of like a million puns. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, Wait, I want to hear an erosion joke. Is that it's, okay? Uh, there's, there's nothing quick. I, it, would, it would be a lot. You guys really want to hear an erosion joke? I would love to hear an erosion joke. I hear they take a long time. Uh, (laughs) Just just don't water it down. (laughs) So I do a lot of... uh, Erosion and sediment control, right, it's uh, trying to make dirt stay put... Uh, trying to keep soil from getting into uh, rivers, streams, getting the fish dirty. And I was at an erosion and sediment control conference uh, down in San Antonio a few months back. And uh, there's a, an erosion and sediment control cover band <laughs> that one of my coworkers plays in uh, called, <laughs> called Hail Hydra Mulch. And they play... <laughs> exclusively erosion and sediment control covers of popular rock and roll hits uh, like Gary Glitter's Do You Wanna Mulch Me? parentheses oh yeah and uh, Hail Hydra Mulch was supposed to play at this conference down in San Antonio and then the day before the conference their appearance got cancelled for what was described to me as political reasons (laughs) So did people think it was a Heil Hitler joke and not like a like a Heil like Hail Hydra joke? I assume some dirt got out. This is gonna be the one that like Hollywood's gonna call me for. I feel like I'm I'm about to like move up based on uh, the strength of my erosion and sudden control jokes. Get us that dirt girl. No, not like that. Like, seriously, it's all erosion. (laughs) I wish we could have heard that band. I love their cover of Metallica's uh, Enter Sediment Man. That's one of my favorites of theirs. I'm I'm not going to start this, because otherwise the rest of the show will be entirely... Yeah, we can't do it. (laughs) Do we have any other questions? There was a question at the back of the room there, I think. Uh, Yeah, my question for us, well, I just wondering, um, what first drew you to ditches? The question was, what first drew you to ditches? So a lot of what I like is uh, there's a lot of like green infrastructure work going on that's kind of associated with what I do. So that's basically taking um, like a lot of stormwater systems and kind of making it distributed and basically uh, trying to make like a lot of rain basically like stay where it falls. And there's a lot of super interesting work going on in Portland um, in regards to that. And so I I liked a lot of the, like, biofiltration stuff, and uh, a lot of what I'm doing now is not exactly that, but I'm doing a lot of, like, traditional stormwater design, but uh, my company does a little bit of this um, green infrastructure work and is also just, like, full of very, like, bright, cool people. So that's I kind of, like, fell into it a little bit, but, um, yeah, there's definitely aspects of that that interest me. I have a question for you. Yeah, sure. Which is so, like, so in Portland, they do lots of uh, rainwater treatment with, by planting cool plants mm-hmm. that, like, love to soak up, I guess, toxins. Yeah. Um, 
can you tell us what's what's your favorite like toxin absorbing plant and <laughs> what is so sweet about it? I'd have to look up species. I know you can do um, like the, there's been some work with uh, heavy metals remediation with like willows, I think. So just you go into an area and you can plant it. And uh, yeah, again, I would have to like look up exactly what you would use, but it's cool that you could like. Um, Plant. Do you, do Willows you suck up bad things. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. yeah. Uh, you can like have uh, plants that do biouptake of mercury and do other heavy metals. Do you personally have a favorite plant? Do I have a favorite plant? I'm really into succulents. Oh, I love succulents. Yeah. What what kind of succulents? I like jade plants. I find their Everyone likes surfaces jade plant, very yeah. pleasing. Yeah. <laughs> I like any plant that outlives humans. <laughs> I, I kill all my cactuses, though. I keep buying succulents, and then they die, which is so... Yeah. It's so hard How to kill you? them. Yeah. I just forget to water them for, like, months, and then it's like, all right, well... I have on my desk right now, my office, I have, like, a collection of dead succulents. It's, like, it's really sad. It's like a little succulent graveyard. <laughs> and then it's, like, plants are supposed to, like, make your office better, but instead mine are just, like, a reminder of failures. Like a... Could you not see it as, like, a sign of... you know? Succulents keep me humble, you know? Could you not see it as a sign of how powerful you are? Like, I'm able to kill even this, the most unkillable of plants. Yeah. (laughs) Just, Just shows your dominion over the plants. I think we have time for one more question, probably. We should wrap I, things up. Does I think we have... do. There was another hand up before, but there's one at the yes. front there. So as scientists and mathematicians, do you find that you use your scientific brain to like, analyze comedy and like, strengthen it or find patterns and all those sorts of things that scientists do in, in comedy? That question was, um, as scientists in, in comedy, do you find you use your scientific analytical mind to, like, was it to analyze comedy and to... Make it better. How much of the scientific brain do you put into the comedy? I would say to a fault. Um, we've had uh, Dr. Peter McGraw on, who, is, who wrote a book called The Humor Code, where he's trying to find a grand unifying theory of what makes things funny. And he has a theory called Benign Violation. It's an interesting book. You should read it. Um, but yeah, I think I see too much data, too many data points with all the submissions for the festival, and then it, it, sometimes it makes you wonder if comedy is even possible. Uh, yeah, because you do see you see patterns, and you know, even in this era we're in, where sort of alt comedy won the comedy culture war, and and the good guys are kind of running the game now. Um, there's still tropes, and you're like, oh, like a hundred people are talking about this thing. I don't want to talk about that. You know, you see patterns in good and bad ways, and. You see things that can work for a laugh, but then once you've seen that trick, you're like, do I even want to employ that trick? And uh, I don't know, I can, I can spin in my head too much about it. And then I don't get on stage, uh, and that's bad. But I don't know, Matt. I, I would totally love to see a graph of what people are making jokes about right now. Oh, God. Like, we, what is, like, the hot, what is, like, the thing that everyone's making Beyonce. jokes about? Beyonce oh. is, the, it's weird, like we keep track, uh, the submission committee keeps track, keeps like a Google Doc where we put down things we keep hearing people joke about, and it changes a little by year, but there are through lines, I mean like obviously comics are all wanting you to know how they're a piece of shit, they live in a shitty neighborhood. Um, Next they, year it's all going to be erosion and sediment control. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is the... <laughs> like just the another beginning. ditch. But shape. I want everybody to know that I was first. Yes. <laughs> Mail this to ourselves. Matt, what do you think about your engineering uh, informing, your maths informing company? I think there are are definite parallels between the brain work that you need to prove a theorem and the brain work that you need to write a joke. Like, it's definitely that similar logical but not quite lateral thinking kind of leap. And also, mathematicians really like concise, beautiful proofs, and comedians really like concise, beautiful jokes. 
and there's a definite overlap between the way your brain works when you're working out both those things. So yes is the short answer. And then there's a massive difference in that you can't just kind of wing it in mathematics. <laughs> it, you can't it, do crowd work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, did you ever have to do any kind of dissertation-y thing, Ella, with your master? Which degree do you have? You have a master's? Yeah, master's. Did you have to present or defend any kind of thing? Or? Yeah, I had to do a little, uh, like a presentation of my... Um, like master's project. So that's a performative thing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it was funny because uh, <laughs> at my presentation, nobody laughed at the one joke in my presentation. <laughs> and then the when, I, uh, when I got this job, I told the same joke because um, I had to present my research when I was interviewing and they laughed and that was part of why I was like, yeah, okay, I could work here. <laughs> you know we have to hear that What's joke now. Uh, it was just about, um, it was like a, it was, talking about rainwater harvesting and I referred to like something as like the Mad Max scenario and that was it. It was just like a little like nice little like undercurrent but in that presentation I was like oh nobody laughed and then in the the interview it was like cool this is this is where I would like to work. Nice. Yeah, like, this nice. is a much better room. Yeah. That was yeah. <laughs> tough crowd in yeah. the other. <laughs> For sure. Um, I think we, we should start winding this up but where can, uh, where can our listeners find out more about both of your and your work? So Ella where can they find you and your uh, you can find me at elegalcomedy.com and on Twitter at at Hella Kale. Yay! <laughs> um, I host the feminism and pop culture podcast Popaganda, which is produced by Bitch Media. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And then also the Summer of Science, is that Oh happening? yeah, Summer of Science is a local thing here in Portland um, that's free, all ages, starts June 27th. Um, I can give you a flyer if you come and talk to me or just Google Summer of Science Portland and you'll find it. Uh, also, people should definitely check out your burrito photo shoot. Oh my god, <laughs> I was thinking about that we should explain that because like burrito makes three dot com. It's a very Just visual look it, thing. Look it up. Burrito makes three dot com. It made me laugh out loud. Uh, it's very very funny. It's, I didn't think it was meant to be funny. It's just a beautiful photo shoot. I'm, I'm sorry. No, no, it's right. It's a right, it's family right. moment that Ella was involved in, and we're not going to say anything more than that. But just That's look it. at burrito makes three dot com. And for everyone here, if you haven't already listened to the podcast, uh, you can go to probablyscience.com and download all 210 episodes we've done now, um, which include a lot of really fun comics and actual scientists, like people that worked on the LIGO gravity wave detector, things like that. Um, and listeners at home, thank you as always for supporting the show, and please keep on spreading the yeah. word. And um, and thank you so much for our guests. We've worked out like who's the best and who's the worst person now at this table, and <laughs> where we all stand. Ella's saved lives, and... <laughs> And he avoided working on missiles. Barely, barely. <laughs> well, I guess we're just the worst then. Yeah, I think it's between me and Sarah. I think Sarah. it's between us, yeah. Because we've done... Well, like, I'm sort of guilty by association. Because <laughs> I'm British. <laughs> but on the other hand, I still think I get a pass because when they were dividing the countries, my people were in Russia going, maybe they'll learn to like Jews. <laughs> So I, I, I think I get a pass. <laughs> but... Well, now I feel bad for making fun of you for being British, so... I'll no, never feel bad for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think we were telling my parents were the worst for not giving me vaccines as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's hear one more time for Sarah Merck and Ella Gale. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome Matt Kirshen. Um, I'm Andy Wood. Thank you, all of you, and thank you, everyone at Bridgetown and all of the staff here at the Doug Fur and the Bridgetown Comedy Festival because they helped this happen. There's one last day. Have a great rest of your festival. 
Thanks for coming, guys. Thank you. Amazing guests. Cheers. Bye. Bye.